Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for these glorious words. We thank you that they're true. We ask now, Lord, that you would open up our minds so we can think right about you. But even more than that, may we receive at the heart level what you have for us today. Holy Spirit, we need you to be our teacher. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to borrow a phrase from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Welsh, British physician who became a uh, well-known pastor, preached in London, kind of famous in, uh, in the 20th century, and he said this about the gospel. He said, it is logic on fire. It is logic on fire. Here's what he means by this. On the one hand, it is logic. The gospel that Jesus Christ defeated the power of sin, the power of death, and he rescues all who believe in him, that basic gospel truth, it makes sense. In your mind, it's true. But even more than that, it, it penetrates your heart. It's not true just in an abstract sense, but it is true for you. And it's something that stirs your emotions, stirs your feelings. So really, when we think about the gospel, when we think about Romans 8, I can't think of any better place in the Bible to illustrate how both the logic of the gospel and the fire of the gospel come together. Because my friends today, if we are going to be changed by this truth, it cannot be something that just sits in the intellectual space. It has to get from here to here. And then it can get to our hands as we reach out and love those around us. But as I was thinking about this idea, for some, the gospel, for some, the Bible, it's like um, my experience with biology in college. Started off as a, as a biology major, and everything was just textbook for me. I memorized something called the, the Krebs cycle and double helix stuff and, and all this kind of stuff, and I could 
spit it back on the test a little bit to a point where I no longer could. Then I found friendlier uh, space in the English department. But uh, it wasn't real to me. It never came alive. It never came alive. I was talking with my father-in-law uh, yesterday who's just really tough battle with Parkinson's and some dementia, but there's some moments of just tremendous lucidity. And he was talking about uh, messenger RNA and the, and the vaccine and, and, and all this stuff, and, and it was like his eyes sparkled because that truth was alive. The biology was alive. What was dead to me in a textbook was alive to him. And Romans 8 is one of these passages where, comes alive. So this morning as we look briefly at this text, I want to walk you through it and I want you to think of the logic, how it makes sense, but also how does it penetrate the heart. So let me begin. Paul starts with a transitional question. What then shall we say to these things. What are these things? Well, he's going he's to go back. He's going to go back to Romans 8, 28, and all things work together for good for those who love God and are called, those he foreknew, those he predestined, those he justified, those he glorified, these basic truths, this category, those who are in Christ, those who have chosen to follow Christ. This is who that applies to. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to think about the weight of that question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let that question sit on you for a second. Now, what's the evidence that God is for you? Paul's going to put us in the courtroom, and he's going to give us some rhetorical questions that we are answering on our own. He is cross-examining us in some ways and saying, is this not just intellectually true, but is it true for you? Is it true for you? So what's the evidence that God is for you? Well, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave up his son for you. I want you to think of the weight of this. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he could do that, everything else is a piece of cake. It's like if you could lift a thousand pounds, you could lift one. He who did not spare his own son, what will he do for you? What what is the limit to what he will do for you? Now, as we see later in the passage, this doesn't mean it's all going to be rainbows and unicorns. But he has a purpose for everything, and he is for you. How do we know this? He did not spare his own son. If God is working all things out for his glory and you're good, 
Why do you worry? (laughs) Why do I worry? Why do we worry? God will give us what we need. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who will bring any charge? It is God who justifies. It is God who makes us right before him. If God is working all things out for his glory and you're good, why would we ever feel guilty or ashamed or like we are unforgiven? On the cross, he paid it all. Doesn't mean we can't be convicted, but this general sense of, I, could God forgive me of that? That should die at the cross for each one of us. Who will condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. He is standing on our behalf. How do we know this is true? Well, he rose. Does it make sense? The logic of the gospel says, I know this is true. This is not just some made-up fairy tale that we would like to believe that's a crutch when we're weak, that's some pipe dream in the by and by. No, no, no. Jesus died on a cross, and he rose from the dead. He entered history. He entered history, and it's true. Because of that, all these promises we know are true. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Wow. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, nothing. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Now, as we think about this, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's quite a list. What will separate us? Nothing. Nothing. And then Paul does this. He takes us to uh, Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, I love this passage. This, this whole part of Psalm 8, this is one, like when I see people in the hospital and it's really bad, this is what I bring. Funerals, this is what I will read a lot of times. But I'll skip this passage sometimes because I'm like, this seems, seems kind of weird. It seems out of place. But then you dig into it and you go back to Psalm 44 and you see this is a time When God's people, the Israelites, they were in exile, and they were asking hard questions of God. They're saying, where are you in the midst of all this? We have been faithful. Where are you, God? It's a lament. They haven't given in, yet they are suffering even more. 
And in this psalm, we see a chasm, a gap between the promises of God and reality. Have you been there? Where you feel like, God, I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything right, or at least as I see it. Where are you? How come things don't change? Paul is speaking to this. Paul is speaking to this right here because he's saying you're part of a long chain of God's people who have suffered. Even way back in the Old Testament, who died. And he says this at the end of the psalm. He says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our heads to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then the psalmist calls up, calls out, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. How does God answer this cry hundreds of years later? Jesus. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. This is Jesus' response to the cry of the psalmist. But there's more. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where for me, The logic catches fire. The logic catches fire. And I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about your week. What's your week been like? What's your morning been like? What's been hard for you this week? There's an argument of the gospel There are things we believe, there's terminology we learn. But then how does this hit us at the heart level? And I want to be clear this morning, even as we talk about these promises, these promises are true for those who put their faith and trust in Christ. What does that mean? It means they're not true for those who have not. I want you to hear that reality and the opportunity and invitation. (laughs) If you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, God has you here for a reason. Let's get that done today. (laughs) Let's take care of that today. There is hope for you today. But I want you to think about these questions. I want you to think not just in the abstract, but I want you to think about wherever you are right now. I'm going to quote my dear friend, Craig Westrick, great theologian, great neighbor, great elder, 
In his journal on Romans 8, God said, hey, look at Craig's journal on Romans 8. He won't care if you quote him. He says this. So with that in mind, what can separate us from the love of God, Paul asked. Essentially, this is also a rhetorical question that relies on the buildup of the prior questions. It's as if you climbed a mountain. It's as if you climbed a mountain, stood at the highest point, and asked if there was anything in all of existence or eternity that could prohibit you from being on the top of that mountain. No, you are already there, period. End of discussion. Look around. See for yourself. Feel for yourself. Nothing can separate you. Make your own list of what you think might separate you and run it through this gauntlet. It will not survive to the end. God has conquered all. Amen. I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to picture yourself on that mountain. And this mountain is a perspective that understands God is for you and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Those are the two core truths. So as you're on the top of that mountain and you look down, everything else is in perspective. Everything else is in perspective. If God is for me, who can be against me? As you look down at all the circumstances, all the feelings that may cause you to doubt, to question, you're at that perspective. But here's what I also want you to hear this morning. Nothing can knock you off that mountain. A gauntlet, the things that are swinging at you, the hard things of life, nothing can knock you off that mountain. Now, how do you know this is true? Because here's the deal, my friends. How did you get to the top of the mountain? You didn't get there on your own. <laughs> Jesus carried you to the top of that mountain, and he is with you right beside you. I love to climb mountains. I remember years and years ago, Long's Peak in Colorado, beautiful place, 14,000 plus feet, got up to the keyhole, not quite all the way to the top, looked out, windy. This wind is going to blow me off the mountain. I've got little kids. I have altitude sickness. I'm in bad shape. <laughs> Time for me to get off the mountain. Sometimes we feel that way in our faith. Sometimes we feel that way, that the wind is blowing, that there are things that are knocking us off the mountain. But I believe the reason, the logic of why we think that way is because somehow, some way, we think we got there on our own. And somehow we think it's us, up to us to stay there. But the fundamental truth, is God really for you? The answer is yes. Can anything separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. If I think that I've done something to get there, if I believe that way, if I think that way, and I say, why does God love us? 
It's not because of anything in us, because that can change. It's not because of anything around us, that can change. But when I realize it's God who's brought us to the mountain and it's God who keeps us there, then the logic of the gospel is on fire. And I know because I know because I know. I've got the Holy Spirit who reminds me that all this is true. I am not alone. You are not alone. We are not alone.